again, everybody. We are continuing a series of sermons on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Having looked at the introduction to this sermon over the last two weeks, the setting, the Beatitudes, the purpose of the disciples, the purpose of the law, today, in a sense, we kind of move into the meat of the sermon, if you like, the sermon stuff itself. And today, we're looking at the first of uh, six things known as the six antitheses. Uh, In uh, our Pew Bible, which you might like to have open on page 786, in our Pew Bible, each of these six antitheses are labeled with their own heading. And those headings are murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for eye, and love for enemies. So it looks like we're in for an interesting time. An antithesis is literally an antithesis or an anti-idea or a different idea. Um, In these six sections, Jesus presents, if you like, something like six anti-ideas. That is to say, he presents six statements in which he negates one idea or supersedes one idea in order to present another idea, not that, but rather this. Um, Each of the six sections begins with something like, you have heard that it was said, after which he presents a teaching that he expects his audience to be already familiar with. And then he presents a new or different idea, a new teaching, one which perhaps in some way negates or supersedes the older teaching with a new teaching. And this new idea is presented with, but I tell you. You have heard it was said, but I tell you six times. Before we look at any of these six sections, it's worth to stop and ask ourselves, well, who is Jesus contradicting? And that's a good question because at first glance it looks like Jesus wants to contradict or negate or upgrade or update The Bible, the Old Testament speaking generally, or perhaps the law of Moses speaking specifically. Is that what he's doing? Is Jesus changing the law, speaking against Moses, presenting himself as a higher authority? Well, the answer to that is no, that's not what he's doing at all. But it's easy to imagine that that's precisely what he's doing, because after most of the six, you have heard that it was said, statements, there follows something that we might recognize as a Bible verse. Um, But there are several reasons why we know that Jesus is not contradicting Moses. He's not contrasting himself with Moses. Several reasons. Firstly, Jesus has only just told us, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the Moses. I have not come to abolish them Sorry, did I say Moses? I meant prophets. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Well, we we looked at the meaning of those verses in some depth last week. Jesus, in one sense, is the new Moses, the new deliverer. But he hasn't come to abolish or oppose any earlier teaching. He upholds the Old Testament unequivocally as the Word of God. 
So then, for him to immediately start to contradict Moses would have him contradicting himself. Furthermore, um, Jesus, throughout Matthew's Gospel, in his temptation in the wilderness or in his answering of questions in debates and answering questions, Jesus always upholds Scripture as the final authority. Secondly, when Jesus does quote from the Bible, when he does quote Scripture, and he does that frequently throughout all of the Gospels, he introduces it with the formula, it is written. So here and now in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't quoting Scripture, because if he did that, he'd say, it is written. Rather, he's taking to task some form of oral tradition, something that has been heard rather than something that has been read. Thirdly, when we look carefully at the content of what Jesus seeks to contradict or to change, we see that it doesn't always fit the Bible anyway. In verse 43, we'll read, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. To be sure, the first half of that, love your neighbor, that can be found in the Bible. But the second half, hate your enemy, well, that's not from the Bible. And also, in uh, verse 31, there is a phrase there that appears in quotation marks. That phrase cannot be found in the Old Testament. So Jesus is quoting someone, but that someone isn't the Bible. It isn't Moses. So then, who is it that Jesus wishes to contradict? Who is he contrasting himself with? Well, actually, Jesus has already told us immediately beforehand, we've only just read verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, again, we, we looked at that statement in some detail last week. But we now know that Jesus is contradicting someone. And he is contrasting his teaching with the teaching of others. And who are those others? Well, it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So who were those guys? And why should they be contradicted? Well, the, the Pharisees were a sect within Judaism, a, a movement that was committed to the meticulous observance of the law in fine detail. Um, they were concerned with things like tithing, ritual purity, Sabbath observance, and in order to know and understand this stuff, they committed themselves to the study and the application of the Old Testament, the Bible as they had it. But Pharisees, most Pharisees were lay in the sense that being a Pharisee wasn't a job. Uh, they had normal jobs, but their expertise in Scripture and in interpretation was widely recognized. Paul, as you may already know, was a Pharisee before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he earned his living as a tent maker or leather worker. In contrast to the Pharisees, the scribes or the teachers of the law, they were a professional body of men. It was their job. It was how they earned their living. They began their training as children and continued studying until a formal ordination at age 40. Um, as ordained rabbis, they wore distinctive robes and clothing, and they were treated with immense respect by their fellow Jews. As they walked down the street, people would stand up as they passed, and at public functions, places of honor were usually reserved for them. Both groups, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, were highly respected by the populace in general, 
for being people who pursued the requirements of God wholeheartedly. And what did they teach? Well, they taught the Bible. Or at least that's what they thought they were doing. But in practice, what they really taught was their own traditions, their own interpretations, their own thoughts, layer upon layer, building up to a body of traditions which for them had the same authority as the Bible because it was all about the Bible. But the distinction between the authority of the Bible and their own teaching was often lost on them. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that their teachings had congealed into traditions and the traditions were often hypocritical insofar as what they did was they created loopholes and get out of jail for free cards and they allowed people basically to escape the difficult obligations of the law. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this about their entire ministry. He sums it up, he judges it, and he condemns it, saying, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are mere human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And um, we, we might think, oh, that's awful. That's just appalling. But if we if we look a little bit closer, we might find that actually we have a little bit, of, bit more sympathy with these guys than, than when we first imagined. Because what they were trying to do was simply to help people. To help people to live a law that was widely understood as being impossible. Impossibly demanding. A heavy burden. A hard load. All these decrees and commandments and regulations and stipulations. So how do we help people? Well, in order to do that, what they did was they decreased the restrictions of the law. When the law said you couldn't do something, well, they made that just as narrowly defined as humanly possible. And so they decreased the restrictions of the law and they increased the permissiveness of the law of Moses. When the law said you, you could do something, well, then they maximized that to the hilt. And what we're going to see is Jesus, in effect, reversing all of this. If, if we were listening to Jesus today uh, with Jewish ears, we, we would be quite shocked. And we would probably apply the label fundamentalist or hardliner or conservative. Back to the Bible. We might say, this man pulls no punches. Because Jesus is calling us, his disciples, to the strictest possible interpretation and the most radical obedience imaginable. The obedience to the word of God that comes from the heart. Well, an another important question then is, who is Jesus contrasting? Because, when I say this, because every one of these six antitheses contrasts two, two groups of people. On the one hand, Jesus says, you have heard it was said to the people of long ago, but I say to you. So, two groups of people, the people of long ago and the you. 
Well, the you is his disciples, the followers of Jesus. But who are these people of long ago? Well, literally, it's the people of ancient times, a phrase which probably refers to the people of the old covenant, the Mount Sinai generation. As, as we thought about last week, Jesus' understanding is that with him comes in the new covenant. And these are, the, his disciples, the new covenant people of God. Jesus is contrasting the people of the old covenant with the people of the new covenant, his followers. And what does he mean by saying, I tell you? Who does Jesus think he is? Well, the but I tell you statements, they are an emphatic description of Jesus' own understanding of his own identity. Jesus, on the one hand, fully affirms the full authority of the Old Testament as the word of God, but he gives himself that same authority. Nobody else would have said this. Moses and the prophets, they all would have begun a a, a teaching segment with, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, but I tell you. Who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's the Lord. And he is. We've already been told that. Um, He is God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus is not showing us that as human beings, all human beings have the authority within themselves to interpret the word of God in any way which makes sense to them. If that were the case, his severe rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees would make no sense at all. Jesus is showing us that he, as a human being, speaks nevertheless with the voice of God because he is God. God with us. Um, let's now uh, have a look at page 786. We're going to read what Jesus says about anger. I'm going to uh, set my own translation on the screen as an additional aid, although the NIV translation in your hands is a better translation. You can just compare the two um, uh, as you wish. Beginning with verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, do not murder. And whoever murders is liable to judgment. Well, uh, Jesus summarizes the teaching of the Old Testament. You shall not murder is the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Um, You can find it in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. The Old Testament assumed killing in the context of war, and it prescribed the death penalty for several major crimes. But it handled accidental manslaughter as a different thing. But when it came to murder, when it came to killing someone intentionally with malice aforethought, out of jealousy, greed, anger, revenge, hatred, envy, whatever it was, if that person was found guilty at the witness of two or three, then they were to be condemned. Jesus continues, verse 22, But I say to you that, A, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, and B, whoever might say to his brother, empty head, Raka, is liable to the Sanhedrin, and C, whoever might say, oh, you moron, is liable to the fires of Gehenna. Um, Jesus now gives his teaching. It is not offered in contradiction to the Old Testament. No, indeed, it is consistent with it. But rather, Jesus does not insist that 
his disciples just keep the letter of the Lord. No, they are to keep the letter of the law. But in this we see that Jesus' disciples are not just to keep the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. Their behavior was actually to exceed the requirements of the letter of the law. And this is a general principle applicable widely to the Sermon on the Mount. The ethical requirements laid upon the new covenant people of God wildly exceed the ethical requirements laid upon the old covenant people of God. We are to do better, much, much better. And it is undoubtedly true. The ethical requirements laid upon the new covenant people of God wildly exceed the ethical requirements required under the Old Testament. On the other hand, this is not to suggest that obeying the law of Christ is even more difficult than obeying the law of Moses. It is not difficult. It is easy. I mean, Jesus tells us that. Come unto me, all who are heavy, laden, and hard-pressed, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is easy to obey Jesus. If we are absolutely and perfectly loving in all that we do and say, if we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, obeying Jesus is not only easy, it's natural. And that is the whole point of the new covenant. That with the gift of the Spirit, these things are natural, easy. A heart full of love. Returning to the text, as I hope my translation makes clear, Jesus gives three situations of increasing culpability and of increasing punishment. Anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. The word for anger here is a particular, a particular word. Um, and... Um, as a general thing, words that we hear in the Bible that we think are referring to emotions and feelings, Hebrews would be more likely to consider those words referring to actions than feelings. Um, the word for anger here does indeed mean an intense abiding anger, but it means the anger that leads to action leading to violence, revenge, or some other kind of destructive behavior. The word could perhaps be translated a destructive rage. Jesus' words here mean where there is an abiding, deep-seated resentment of a kind that will lead to destructive action, a council must be called and the matter must be investigated. Anger that is accompanied by hatred and contempt, even in response to being treated badly, doesn't matter how the anger was created. Um, that kind of anger that leads to destructive behavior is really murder because it is a deeply sinful refusal to accept God as judge and a deeply sinful refusal to love and forgive. It is an unrepentant response given how God has loved and forgiven us, his enemies. The word uh, brother here is correctly translated in the Pew Bible as brother or sister uh, because what is meant is a fellow Christian, a fellow follower of Jesus. God has a unique love for his children, the followers of Jesus, and our Heavenly Father is not willing to allow us to treat each other with contempt. Indeed, among the disciples of Jesus, if one of them says to another, Racha, they must present themselves before the Sanhedrin 
the Supreme Court in Jerusalem for a ruling. Um, Raka um, means something like empty head. So a word about obscene speech in the New Testament. Uh, yeah, referent register. When it comes to obscene speech, we can differentiate between the referent and the register. The referent is the thing that is referred to, what the word means. The register is how rude it is, how offensive it is. So then, for example, in English, there are many words. We have a huge abundance of words in our language for human and animal excrement. They range in register from poo, that's not a very rude word, I can say it in church, poo, through to a whole bunch of other words, many of them having four letters, that are extremely rude, particularly in combination with other profanity or obscenity. So register and referent. Referring back to verse 22, raka. The word, uh, literally, the referent, the meaning is empty or empty head. We just do not know what the register was. We don't know how rude this word was. Um, some say that it was extremely rude, a term of awful contempt. Others disagree. Um, like rude words in our own culture, context makes a big difference. Uh, but English words with the same uh, referent may be idiot, stupid, dimwit, or halfwit. They all have about the same, um, they all have about the same uh, referent. Um, we're not sure about register. So calling another Christian an idiot... Well, that person should face the eldership of the church for discipline. Um, calling, somebody, calling somebody an idiot, that should be a matter for the church to discuss. Thirdly, whoever might say, oh, you moron, is liable to the fires of Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna was a literal place. It was the bottom of a valley immediately outside of Jerusalem. And as a place, it had deep and powerful associations as a place of awful historic atrocities and abominable things happening there. And in Jesus' day, it was a rubbish dump, a refuse disposal site, fires burning continuously. Jesus refers to this physical place, but his meaning is correctly translated, rendered in the NIV as fires of hell, because Jesus' reference to this place, we, we come to know and understand clearly, Jesus is talking about the reality of an eternal, unending punishment as the destiny of all who are unrepentant, of all who are wicked. That's where they go. Uh, moros. Um, the word traditionally is translated full. That's how it's rendered in your pew Bible. Um, uh, moros is the Greek word from which we get the English word moron. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, this term occurs frequently enough for us to see uh, its register, that it is actually a very rude word. Uh, it's uh, referent. What does it mean? It means gross lack of moral and spiritual insight resulting in evil behavior. That's what it means. The register is very high. In other words, it is a very rude word indeed because it is implying that the person in question is not saved, that the person in question is going to hell. And for us as Christians, 
there is one startling application. And that is that I have often heard fellow Christians say of other Christians, oh, that person isn't really a Christian. I can't believe they're really a Christian. They're they're not really a Christian. And I've been tempted to do the same myself from time to time. But... And from time to time, various people have said to me, oh, you're not a Christian at all, or you're a fake Christian, or a Laodicean Christian, or a non-Christian, as as a term of abuse. Uh, Generally, it means they disagree with me theologically, or I'm refusing to meet their needs in a way that they think I should. Um, But, yeah, I'm on the receiving end of that insult. Uh, I have been a number of times, and uh, every time I am, I am astonished at how that particular insult stings. Um, it has long been clear to me that when a brother or sister Christian accuses another brother or sister uh, Christian of not actually being a brother or sister Christian, something profoundly spiritual is happening, something profoundly satanic is going on. We must not do it. The Christian who judges another Christian as not being a Christian is in danger of eternal punishment. There it is, verse 22. If if those words have passed our lips, today would be a good day to repent and ask Jesus to forgive us, as well, of course, to ask the forgiveness of the person we said it to. Because Jesus continues, verse 23, Therefore, if ever you might be offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, abandon your gift there in front of the altar and go first that you might be reconciled to your brother. And then come, offer your gift. This is the concluding thought. In context, something against you doesn't mean any unreasonable grudge, but rather a legitimate grievance based upon the fact that you truly have sinned against them. Um, if If you've sinned against someone and you suddenly realize it, leave, go, figure it out. Matter of haste. The idea of interrupting the worship of God in order to leave and find someone somewhere, that idea of interrupting worship was almost unthinkable to the Jews. But Jesus' teaching here is scriptural. The same thing was advised in Leviticus 6, which Naomi read to us earlier. That's the real point of application. If you remember that, yes, actually, you have sinned against someone, go and find them immediately and make it right. It is meaningless to, at worship, plead for God's forgiveness when we are unwilling to repent before others against whom we've sinned. And one application of this principle that we have as Anglicans is the greeting of the peace, done especially before we share Holy Communion together. Um, That is a time, the greeting of the peace, when if we're aware that someone legitimately has something against us, we can go to them and say, Oh, just before we share Holy Communion, I know, I know what I've done. Uh, please forgive me. I, I, I believe that you might be a little bit angry with me, to which they probably respond, I'm very angry with you, but at least we've made a start. Please forgive me. Um, that may not be the time to work through a full confession and restitution with them. That might have to come after the service, but it is a time to acknowledge the issue so that brothers and sisters can say we are forgiven, we're going to celebrate the unity that we have in Christ at Holy Communion without hypocrisy. That's the point of the greeting of the peace. And by the way, the greeting of the peace is not a time to reverse that principle and approach people who have sinned against you and point that out to them. 
It's astonishing how often people think that's the point of the greeting of the peace. But it's, if, that's, if people have sinned against you, well, and yeah, you need to talk about it. Yep, that's important, but it's done in a different way. Go to Matthew chapter 18 for instructions. Continuing, verse 25. Be favorable to your adversary swiftly as you are with him on the road lest the adversary might deliver you over to the judge and the judge to the assistant and into prison you are thrown. Truly I say to you, you will, be, you will by no means come out from there until you might pay back the last copper coin. Um, this is the, um, uh, Jesus has given his teaching, then he gives his conclusion. This is a sermon illustration just at the end. The, it is a simple uh, illustration from everyday legal procedure. It simply illustrates the principle that if you are the guilty party in a legal dispute, the faster you resolve the issue, the less it's going to cost you in the end. Um, That's all he's saying. For example, if I did actually say slander somebody in public and a lawsuit came against me and I was guilty, it would be wise for me to run after them and beg an out-of-court settlement as soon as possible. Because if, as a result of my own pride and bitterness and resentment for whatever it was that caused me to offer the slander in the first place, if all those terrible things, I drag things out and drag them through the courts, then the legal fees are going to escalate, the positions are going to get entrenched, and when I am found guilty, because I am guilty, it's going to cost me a heck of a lot more. That's just the point of this illustration. That we might see clearly When we've done wrong and we know it, we must set things straight as fast as we can. And the longer we delay, the more it's going to cost us. As Paul says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not let the devil gain a foothold. Ephesians 4. Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law took it for granted that we live in a world of anger and hatred. After all, they felt that they had a biblical mandate to hate their Roman overlords who had taken the country from them by force. And likewise, they were very good when it came to insults and curses. They were very practiced in their use. They knew what they were doing. They were as good with insults and curses as a U.S. Navy SEAL might be with an M16. They've had a lot of training. Jesus, in contrast, uses the sixth commandment to make the point. Actually... Biblically, hatred is murder. Or as the Apostle John puts it, whoever hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And no murderer has eternal life in him. And anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Lord, have mercy on us and write your law on our hearts. By your Holy Spirit. Amen.